0: mm <music> COVID-19 crisis has been the most challenging thing our world collectively has faced since World War II. For many, a part of that challenge has been tough theological questions that have been raised about God, His love, His judgment, His mercy, and His plan in all of this. In today's episode, we dive into the question, does God really use things like pandemics and natural disasters to judge the wicked? I'm Aaron Salvato, I'm joined by my co-host Brian Higgins, and you're listening to the Lion podcast. Yeah. So Brian, I remember being at a summer camp where Evan Wickham taught this really killer message where he reminded us that we're so often calling people who don't know Jesus lost people, but in reality, the way God sees them is that they're loved people. They're people who need a savior. They're people who need to be freed from the bondage that they're in. And they're people who deserve our compassion because God himself was compassionate enough to go to the cross for them.
1: That's so good. He is the one who cares for sinners. That to me is what makes the second question so interesting. We're willing to say that God is not using COVID-19 to specifically judge a specific group of sinners, Mm. but does God punish people using sickness and disasters? Mm. Does he ever use that method to judge people or to punish people? I would say yes and no. (laughs) Um, That's about as
0: clear as as we can get. (laughs) So I I think I remember there's a story in the Old Testament where Moses and Aaron are trying to lead Israel and then their sister Miriam complains or questions their authority or something, which then by extension is questioning God's authority. And then she like instantly gets punished with a sickness, right? Like leprosy or something like that, right? I, I can't remember. She does. Yeah. This is Numbers 12 that you're talking about. Okay. And there's a
1: moment where Moses, Aaron, and Miriam are all brought before the Lord word because there's these questions of who's really the rightful leader who should actually be the one to lead the people of Israel forward and it was pretty clear to everybody else that Moses and Aaron were the guys and Miriam comes along and questions their authority like you're saying and it says that after there's a moment of God speaking to the group the anger of the Lord burned against them and he left them and when the cloud lifted from above the tent Miriam's skin was leprous became as white as snow. And we learned that she was basically left outside the camp for about a week to make sure that she wasn't contagious. But then after that, the disease kind of went away, it seems. And then she was welcomed
0: back into the group. Okay. So that's an example of God gets upset. He removes his presence. And then whether he directly causes the sickness or it's a result of his protection being removed, she gets sick. There's another story in the book of acts where we learn about the death of a wicked king herod agrippa the first who was the grandson of the herod who tried to kill jesus as a baby and god sends this angel to strike him dead and it says he was eaten by worms and he died and i remember this uh really well because the middle school kids thought it was hilarious which is (laughs) middle school kids you know (laughs) says a lot
1: about middle schoolers yeah they um, love sickness and disaster
0: So, this kind of stuff is in the Bible and it causes us to read and go, okay, so obviously, God's MO, what he does is he punishes people with sickness. And disasters. And I think when we're facing some sort of big global crisis, like the one we're facing now, COVID-19, when it's a crisis with lots of horrible things happening and a lot of people getting sick and dying, or a natural disaster like tornadoes or hurricanes, there are some people within the Christian faith who default to a position of, oh, this is God judging something bad happening. Therefore, it always means God is judging because that's the kind of God he is. It's the wrath of God against sinners. He's like, Thor sitting on a cloud, waiting to throw down thunderbolts on anyone who would cross him or question him. So where does that mentality come from?
1: Well, I think first we need to point out how striking those biblical images are. When you're talking about a person being consumed by worms, doesn't
0: that just feel weird? It feels really weird. Like if I was a street preacher and someone challenged me and then I saw them fall on the ground and their gut bursted open and like worms consumed them, I wouldn't be like, ha that's what you get. You godless atheist Just another Thursday. (laughs) I'd be like, I I would probably question everything at that point. I would would have to go to therapy and I would be very bummed that that happened on my
1: watch. Yeah, you wouldn't sit there and think just another sign that my ministry is going well.
0: Right. No, I'd be like, there is a demon involved. That's what I would think. I'd think like something demonic is happening right now. Something terrible is going on. I don't associate God with people getting destroyed by worms. That's not general really a part of his character in in from what i've understood
1: i would agree so what we have then is biblical moments seeming like they don't correspond to our current reality mm. So we have all kinds of moments throughout scripture where God's wrath is depicted. And in the Old Testament, the place I think we can really look for this is in the prophets, because they're often talking about how the wrath of God is going to come against people who are defying the ways of God or are deliberately chasing after other idols. And it seems like there's these really clear comparisons of wrath is coming against people who are sinning. Mm. You know, Jeremiah, I think, gets really specific about this when he compares the invasion of Babylon coming to take over and conquer Israel to drinking the cup of God's wrath. That's the Mm. image that he seems to use really throughout the book. And it becomes this lasting image of, okay, so apparently when people are sinful and are rejecting God, there's a cup of wrath
0: they need to drink. Yeah. That's kind of a freaky image. Like God just has this goblet of his wrath and anger, and he's going to force people to drink it if they cross him and it's it's tough it's challenging because this is in the bible and we're going we're we're taking our time to address this stuff and we're going to address this we we have more on the cup of wrath but just starting there that's just one example there are many verses in the bible where old testament prophets are warning israel about horrendous judgments that will come on them if they continue to rebel like here's one from isaiah 26:21 for behold the lord is coming out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. It's very gnarly. That's an intense
1: verse. Yeah. And if you just read that verse, I I can imagine there are people listening to this podcast where that verse doesn't automatically settle into the rest of the book of Isaiah. Yeah. So it's easy to hear that verse And because of how intense it is to say, oh my goodness, is that what Isaiah wanted? Yeah. Did he just (laughs) want a bunch of people punished and God shedding blood that the earth won't keep, but will like publicly display? Like it's yeah. really easy for these images to stick with us because they're so shocking. There's yeah. another example in Jeremiah 10, 10, It says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King at his wrath. The earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Mm. Like yeah, imagine just, if we described a world leader that way. Oh my like, gosh. The, if the second thing we said about him was the earth will tremble at his wrath.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that the nations won't be able to endure his indignation we we would think of that as like oh my gosh this this guy is overpowered he's power hungry he 's just out to destroy people heres here's ezekiel twenty one thirty one I will pour out my indignation on you. I will blow against you with the fire of my wrath, and I will deliver you into the hands of brutal men who are skillful to destroy. Like, I'm gonna give you over to people who will destroy you. That, it's so hard to reconcile these verses with the picture of a loving God, and especially Jesus, without the context. Just think about daily devotions. You know, people are like, "Oh, what am I going to read?" Ezekiel. They just pick a book of the Bible, and especially if you're a newer Christian, these verses can just be so troubling. And you know, we've got examples in the Old Testament, right, of God causing people to get sick. There's a story in uh, the book of Numbers, I believe, where Israel is rebelling in the wilderness and God allows them to be attacked by a bunch of snakes. Mm -hmm. Um, it says fiery snakes. I don't know if that means they were on fire. I think in, in the translation, it means they were venomous, venomous, stinging snakes and then the plagues of Egypt, right? The the Israelites are leaving, Moses says let my people go, Pharaoh says no, and all of a sudden you've got, you know, frogs and flies and pestilence and boils and and God is sending all of these plagues and then eventually allowing the firstborn to die. And it's, it's just, it can be something where, I mean, I know specifically there are plenty of blogs out there that I've read by skeptics of the Bible and atheists who look at this and they say, Christians claim to be loving. They claim that their God is good, but then how can they follow a God who does these things? And I think they would be the first to say and I've heard them say, you know, if, if your God is like this, then he probably, if he does exist, he probably is the one causing COVID-19 because apparently he loves to torment people. That's what he, that's what he loves when you read the Old Testament.
1: Yeah. When you pull these things out of their context, they seem like the craziest things. Like the, the example that's coming to my mind is let's say there was this boxer, like a Mike Tyson. If you have someone who is a boxer and all I tell you about them is he knocked out this guy and he has a mean left hook and one time he knocked out two guys in the same week (laughs) like if i told you just those like highlights of his boxing career but didn't make it clear to you that he was boxing and then i finished the list saying he's a really great guy i'm sure you'd like him Mm. you'd sit there and think like no this dude seems crazy like he just (laughs) knocks out people all the time and just works on punching like why would I like this guy yeah and it just becomes an example of when you pull away the context of something, you can make anything that is actually pretty understandable sound horrendous. Now, I'm not trying to say that these verses are just super easily understandable and all you're missing is the context of like, God was just boxing with Egypt. Like, that's not what I'm (laughs) trying to say here. But it is to try to say the goal isn't just how do we make it seem okay that God threw a bunch of fire snakes at his own people? Right. It's rather what What is it that was really going on in those particular moments how does the context help inform us of what was actually happening
0: yeah and I, I really hope that to anyone listening you know I hope this doesn't sound sacrilegious what Brian and I are trying to do is we're trying to just be real because I feel like so often pastors can just kind of have this air of like you're the stupid one for not getting this and I've got it all figured out and I understand the Bible perfectly and how dare you doubt we want to be honest we have wrestled with these passages We were just talking before we started recording about how there are still things that we wrestle with in the the Old Testament. There are still things that come up where it's like, oh my gosh, what is this? But while for many, seeing these things has caused them to run away from the Bible and to say the Bible isn't actually true, it didn't actually happen. When we see these things, it motivates us to want to dive deeper and to figure out what is actually going on here because we still believe that Jesus is the most remarkable amazing thing in the universe. And this is the book he gave us that explains to us the story of who he is and what he's doing. So here's an example of context and why it's important. I'm going to read to you Proverbs one verses 24 through 33, because I have called and you refuse to listen. I have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you've ignored all my counsel and you'd have none of my reproof. So I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind and distress and anguish come upon you. They will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently and will not find me.
1: Well, that sounds pretty mean. (laughs) That sounds like... God is just saying, hey, if you don't listen to me and things go badly for you, I'm going to celebrate while your life is on
0: fire. Right.
1: Like God's just sitting in the sky. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Like he's just either your, he's just waiting to be able to say, I told you so.
0: Yeah. And and that he takes pleasure from us getting into trials and and making mistakes and destroying ourselves. So here's the thing. This is why context is really important. This is a psalm and the character speaking in the psalm isn't God. The psalmist is writing this part of the psalm. If you back up a few verses, you can see he's writing it from the perspective of the character of wisdom, which if you've watched the Bible Project's videos on uh, the wisdom series and wisdom literature, you know that wisdom was a character often portrayed as a woman uh, and it was used to help teach lessons. So you're saying that the idea of
1: that section of proverb isn't that God looks at you and laughs when your life falls apart for not following him. Rather, wisdom becomes so obvious that Mm -hmm. when you ignore it and face the consequences, common sense just kind of hits you so strongly that it
0: becomes obvious what you should have been doing instead. Right. Yeah. It's a picture. It's like (laughs) when you make a mistake, when you don't listen to wisdom later on, it's like your wisdom is mocking you. And that's what we go through when we are sitting there thinking, oh, I should have been more wise about that. Why didn't I listen to my conscience or why didn't I listen to wisdom from other people? It's not saying that God is sitting there mocking you. It's, 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 a, it's a picture. It's a, it's a metaphor. But it would be so easy to just stumble on that verse out of context if you're just doing Bible roulette and you open up to that verse. It's easy to walk away and say, well, this is how God is because it's in the Bible.
1: Yeah. Another great example of this is really the entire Bible book of Job, or at least a solid like 30 something chapters of the book of Job. Job is lamenting about the pain that he's going through and he's blaming it on God. There's two verses we can look at in particular, though there's so many more that we can find. Job 16, 9, he says, He tears me in his wrath and hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. Seems like him and God are having a good afternoon. <laughs> yeah. Now, Job 19, 11, he has also kindled his wrath against me and he counts me as one of his enemies. Yeah. Are you going to so be this- putting those on a coffee cup anytime soon?
0: <laughs> but it's so easy to read this verse and say, Because Job is saying this, about God, and because it's in the Bible, it must be true. But it's important to note that just because of verses in the Bible doesn't mean it's true.
1: Hold on. Let's pause there for a moment. Okay. So you're not down for the Bible being true?
0: (laughs) No, no. That's not what I'm saying. Like, I'm not saying... But that's what you just said. Okay. Here's what I'm getting at. If I write you a letter and in that letter, I say something along the lines of, I was talking to my mom and she said, Brian Higgins hates me. Is that letter true? Well, yes
1: and no. There's kind of two different sides to that. I mean, the letter can be true because your mom may have actually said that. Right. But I don't know if I've met your mom, but I'm sure she's
0: a delightful woman. So I don't yeah, actually think that about her. No, you don't hate her. And my mom no. didn't write that. But if she did, if she if she wrote me a letter and, and she said, Brian Higgins hates me, it's true that she said that, but it's not actually a true statement because you don't hate her. And that's what I'm trying to say. Just because it's in the letter, it's true that somebody wrote it. It's true that's how Job was feeling, but that doesn't mean that it's true that that's what God actually Thought about him in the verse, Job says that God is attacking him and hates him and counts him as an enemy. So the account of the story is true. Job did think those thoughts, but that doesn't make the statement about God actually true. So I'm just trying to say we can't just pick random verses out of context. That that was the and, purpose of that object lesson.
1: Yeah, and, and Job is a book where I really care about reading that book correctly. I was able to at Calvary Old Bridge, where I was working, we were able to do a one year teaching through the Bible from a really zoomed out lens. So I taught the entire book of Job in two teachings. It was about an hour and a half worth of teaching to get through the entire book of Job, which, fun fact, was a lot. It was a lot to go through. But it was really fun because studying the whole book, it, it was always something where I would look at individual verses of Job and think, Job is where I learn things about God about suffering. Mm. Like, this is how I learned how to relate with God in the middle of suffering. When really, Job is like 38 chapters of a person unwinding, mm. Job is just slowly unraveling through that book. And part of what you're supposed to do as the reader is hear different things that Job or his friends are saying and say, well, hold on a second. That's not actually true. And that becomes something that can be so helpful as you think about that book for what it's really trying to show you. Like this is a person where he had to get all the way down to the level of this may not actually be true, but it's what I feel at my core level. And I need to get that out in front of God. So yes, Job is talking a lot of true things. It's talking about the truth of what Job felt, but all of that book builds up to Job being corrected by God in the closing right. few chapters. Him saying, if we this is miss what out, I
0: actually am like.
1: Exactly. If we miss out on that key context, we're going to pull out these random verses in Job and say that, well, this is the truth when really it could be Job missing the point completely.
0: And I just feel like this is such an important truth for our listeners to understand in the age of of anytime you want to win a Facebook theology debate, you just go into Google and you type in Bible verses about and whatever you're talking about. And then you can just (laughs) Mm -hmm. literally, it's, it's a list of verses and they're detached from the context of the chapter and the book and the whole story. And you can just insert them into any argument and say, see, this is what God is like because it's in the Bible. And when we take this broad approach and find really the
1: truth of what's going on in scripture, it helps us take a more broad approach to the
0: questions of our day. So we're talking about context, and I think now we should talk about the context of the story of scripture, which is what's called a lot of times the meta-narrative of scripture, right? If our question is, with COVID-19, is this something, could this be something God is causing to wake up the world? Would God currently cause sickness in an effort to wake up the world? Well, my question would be, what is the source of sickness. That's the first place we need to go. And for that, we need to jump all the
1: way back to Genesis chapter three, the story of how evil enters the garden of Eden and through that enters the world. When Adam and Eve join together and decide God has told us what's right and what's wrong, he's told us that we should let him define right and wrong, but instead we're going to go a different route. We're going to decide right and wrong for ourselves. We're going to be the ultimate judges. The Mm. result of that is sickness and evil and death. Because one of the things we even see is God saying to them, the day you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. Mm. And yet they didn't die that exact day. Mm. So it seems like what God is saying is when you eat of this fruit, when you choose to go a completely different direction from what I'm laying out for you, the result of that, is going to be sickness, evil, and death entering the world. And then it creates the whole biblical storyline of evil and death and sickness being released into the world and God fighting against it all throughout the Bible. He hates what sickness and disasters and what sin is doing to his world. And he is constantly working out a plan to undo
0: that corruption from his good world. Yeah. I mean, think about the story of Lazarus, right? Lazarus, a friend of Jesus, gets sick and dies. Is Jesus's response like, oh yeah, that's the way I made the world. Like people are sinners and therefore as judgment, they get sick and die. That's exactly what should happen to Lazarus. And now I'll raise him from the dead because I'm just that great of a guy. That's not his response. His response is he starts weeping when he hears that Lazarus has died. He, he hates sickness and death it's something that is foreign and alien to the world that he's created he's not like oh yeah this is just the natural system i set up the natural consequence i i i love sickness that's just one of my many tools in torturing humans no that's he hates it The guys from the Bible Project, they refer a lot to the element of chaos. They talk about basically how there's two evil entities in the universe, right? There is the enemy, which is. Yeah, we call Satan in Hebrew, it's hasatan. That just means the enemy, satanic forces. And then there's chaos. So satanic forces, right? That's demons who hate Mm -hmm. humans. They are real. They exist. They are working in the background of basically everything. And so with satanic forces, right, it's calculated and strategic. Bad things happen for a reason. And the reason is Satan is making them happen. The enemy is causing bad things to happen. So that's one element. Element. The other element, though, is chaos. And chaos is this idea of... It is random. Like sin enters into humanity and poisons humans, the earth, nature, all of this stuff. And it basically causes these reactions that are completely just evil and random. So it's not this idea of every bad thing that happens, Satan was behind it, and every good thing that happens, God was behind it. It's this idea of like evil itself being this chaotic force that's just unleashed and running wild, almost like the way a a tornado is just completely random. It's not, it doesn't have a mind of its own own. It's a, it's a force of nature. Chaos is this result of the fall that is constantly causing evil, random, horrible things to happen. Does that kind of make sense?
1: Yeah. So it's almost like when I think you talking about satanic forces, there's like a person behind that, not a person meaning like a human, but there's a personal force
0: at work. Like there's a demon sitting at a desk and he's got a tornado button. And he's like, oh, time for the tornadoes. And like, oh, time for COVID-19. And he presses the button. Yeah. Whereas there's
1: also then this idea of chaos, which is a lot more random. And the the idea that I'm kind of seeing there, and and maybe this is where I'm finding it a little bit difficult to latch onto, because the only examples I can think of would be someone or something causing the chaos. But I think of like, if we had a lake that was all clean water. And it was normal that everybody would come down to the lake and just dip a cup into it and drink right out of it. If I poured like a bucket of poison into the lake, then it's possible that you could come and you can dip your cup in and you could get none of the poison and you would still get some clean water. But it's also possible that somebody else would get just enough of the poison to get sick or somebody else would would get enough of the poison to actually die. It's just random because it kind of floats through however it does.
0: not. And it had a source. You were the one who Mm -hmm. poured it. So you're the source of the evil chaos. But the chaos operates independently once it gets poured into the river. Yeah, that's a perfect analogy, I think, because obviously the author of evil, the author of lies, the Bible says, is the enemy But we don't want to blame every single bad thing that happens as this is specifically Satan doing something. Sometimes it is. Other times it's just it's the aftermath of something he already did, which is poisoning the world.
1: Yeah. Sometimes people can get all the way down to the level of if I got a flat tire on my way to work, God was stopping me or Satan was attacking me. And it has to be just one of the two spiritual forces, whereas in a sinful world, people aren't concerned as much much as they should be about how their actions affect others. So the crew that was working on the side of the road left some like jagged metal or tools out or nails in the road and when you drove over them that caused your flat tire. We could kind of pull it back to sin and that may even be stretching it a little far.
0: No, no, that that makes sense to me. But it's I,
1: not that it was a
0: personal attack against you. Right. So rewinding back to the initial question, you know, does God currently use sickness, diseases, pandemics, natural disasters as a key tool that he uses for punishing people for their sin. I would just like to respond to that question with another question, and that is Is it God's will that people be sick and broken? Did he make them for that? And I would say no. Is it, is it God's will that the world be sick and broken? Did he make the world for that? No. Now, can God use brokenness for his purposes? Absolutely. In Exodus, he allows Miriam to get sick with leprosy, and eventually he heals her after seven days. Herod Agrippa was a wicked king who opposed the early church and God's justice against him was to strike him down with worms. God allows Israel to be attacked by snakes in the wilderness because of the rebellion, but then he provides a way of mercy for them to escape death. Now these are all hard passages and the Bible is full of these passages and we must wrestle with them as Christians. And in the next episode, we're going to do that as we look through the thread of God's covenantal justice throughout the scriptures. But the main point I want to make here is that these acts of God, our God operating within a broken world while he's in the process of bringing the world into renewal and restoration. The world was not made for leprosy or death by worms or snakes. The world was not made for pandemics or natural disasters. We call them natural disasters, but really we should be calling them unnatural disasters. When the earth causes, out of that chaos, disasters that kill people, the world is actually going against its nature because the world wasn't invented to kill In the beginning, when you go and look at the original Hebrew, it says uh, the world, when it says formless and void, it's talking about the world being chaotic and God's plan was to tame the world. It was to bring Adam and Eve to bring order into the chaos. God's plan has always been to bring order to chaos. The world wasn't made for killing. It wasn't made for death. It was made for life. That's why he put the tree of life in the garden. So I like the two different questions you're asking because it'd be easy
1: to just ask the question, Is it God's will that people get sick and that people are broken? And it'd be easy to just look at the world around us and say, well, it's what's happening. So maybe? Like it'd be easy to start going down that road.
0: Yeah, if God's in control, this is what's happening. Therefore, isn't it what God wants? But when you ask the question, did he make them
1: for that? Did he make the world for this? That, I think, is a really clarifying question. And. That's something where even when we look at Romans eight, when it talks about the creation itself, it says it's waiting in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. So the very world itself is groaning for when will this finally be over? Because really when you think about what we normally call natural, or I guess what what we should now call unnatural disasters, it's really easy to hear about those things and you just immediately think goodness when will that be over like when will that finally stop happening right and that's a cry where when we feel that it brings us right in line with what creation itself is feeling
0: This is a verse where I appreciate it a ton. It's saying the world is corrupt, the world is broken, and it's almost like the world knows that it's corrupt and broken, and it's, it's mm-hmm. waiting for the day that it's going to be redeemed and restored. And I think, you know, we got to be honest with what the Bible says. It says in, the, in that verse that you read, the world was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. It would be easy to read that and think, oh, like that's talking about Satan. But no, it's actually saying God subjected the world. So then right there, you're like, oh, see, God is the one that subjects the world to all this pain and suffering. But think back to what happened in the garden, right? Adam and Eve betray God. They rebel against him. And that rebellion's not just coming from them. It's coming from the enemy, Satan. And what God did is, He allowed it to happen. Like, He gave humans that free will and that agency to make their own choices. And so, in doing so, he's permitting the world to get broken. He's giving the world over to brokenness. He's allowing things to play out because he's allowing humans to make their own choices. So don't read this verse and think that God broke the world. It was humans that did it. God was the one who allowed it to happen. God handing the world over to its own destruction yeah, because God I think you God are. is not the author of evil, you know,
1: yeah, I don't think that the cursing is like. I'm gonna cause
0: all create. these tornadoes and
1: Yeah, and I think when it uses the phrase in Genesis 3, both thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you Mm. and you shall eat the herb of the field.
0: Like he's describing what's going to happen because of the corruption.
1: He's saying, I I think he's saying not all of your work will be continuously fruitful forever. Like a lot of people would look at that and say like, and that was the day that thorns began to grow. And I I don't know if that's what that's trying to say. I think what it's potentially
0: saying that that, that God's going to be over Adam's shoulder. Like anytime Adam is going to grow a crop, God's, it's like, oh, time to make the thorns happen. Like he's he's the one doing it.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think that that's what he's trying to say. I think instead he's trying to say that there will now be work that is fruitless at times. Right. And you will have to fight through fruitlessness to tame the earth. Whereas right. before I was the ultimate tamer of the earth and you were simply joining me in that mission.
0: And then right there at the end of the verse, it's saying that he was the one who subjected the world to destruction, but it was in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage and decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God, is what that scripture says in the end.
1: Yeah, it seems really clear that God's hope and goal for the world is for it to be whole and fruitful and not bound to decay. Yeah. But as humans, we bring these unnatural forces of destruction and sin and decay and death into the world. And that's not something that God's just going to look the other way at forever. That's something he's going to set back right when he sees fit.
0: Absolutely. I think from this question as we conclude this part the question of does god punish people using sicknesses and natural disasters is that the way specifically that we see him operating in the world on a regular basis i would say our answer on that would be no our key takeaways would be that covid-19 is the result of a fallen and broken world. It's a it's a disease, just like other diseases. It starts within humanity and, and spreads. It's something that God hates. And while he can and will use it for his purposes, his ultimate desire is that no one would be sick or dying. That's, that's his agenda. That's what he wants to happen. And that's what he's fighting for is a world where no one is sick and no one is dying. Yeah, so much of
1: scripture is about God meeting people in circumstances that don't please him, to try to bring them to circumstances that do please him. And where we can often go wrong is we look at the world around us and say, well, if God's in control of this whole thing and this is what's going on, this must be what he wants instead of saying he wants a world that's very different from the world right now, but he's letting us walk through this to reveal to us our inner brokenness.
0: Mm. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of an ongoing series called Tough Questions in the Current Crisis. We hope this episode made you think, we hope it encouraged you, and most of all, we hope that it brought some clarity into this moment that brings a lot of questions with it. Brian and I don't have all the answers, we're not experts, we're two guys who love Jesus very much and we want to do our best to research and study and represent Jesus in this moment well. We hope that we've done that with this episode and that we continue to do that throughout this series. Our show is a production of the Calvary Global Network, it's produced by myself and Brian Higgins. And it's a part of the Good Lion Podcast Network. Check out our website, goodlion.io, for many, many amazing resources and podcasts from Christian content creators all over the web. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes, or you can support us at goodlion.io support. Our goal with this show is to ask hard questions, push past easy answers, and always look to Jesus, the God who is not safe, but is very, very good.